Right, today I am getting back to a series that is all about kingdom. And we've been talking about this for the last several weeks, what it means for us to be people of the kingdom of God. Or as we've seen it in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew often refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. And we've been looking at all of these passages, parables, stories of Jesus in Matthew that talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we do that then in ways that give us some assurance and some detail that the kingdom is not only a spiritual otherworldly thing, but Jesus talks about kingdom like it's right here, right now. The kingdom began with Jesus. And so we're searching for what it means for us to live as people of the kingdom now. And we see that the kingdom is not only a future-oriented event, but that it's also something very much a part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ right now. So we've been looking at what that kingdom means in that. All right, and I've been giving a definition in the weeks that we've been doing this. I've been trying to repeat this every week so that we know what a parable is, since we're looking at parables. So this is what helps us to know how to read a parable. So I've been saying it every week. We should know this by now. Well, okay, if you're a guest or you're visiting with us, you get a free pass, right? You're not expected to know this right away. But if you are here every week, I hope you know the answer to this now. A parable is a story that conveys kingdom idea. So we've been looking every week when we've looked at a parable, we've been asking, what's the kingdom idea that's in this parable? And parables always seem to call for a response. Jesus wants the people who hear this to respond in some way when they hear these stories. So when we look at parables, that's what we look at. We look at these things and we ask ourselves, what's the kingdom idea that Jesus is trying to say? And what's the response? What does Jesus want from his people as a response because of this story and how this goes? All right. So today, I'm going to read three parables. Uh, it's a passage that's a little bit longer because it's three parables. If you're with us regularly, normally you notice that uh, the passage is printed in your bulletin. It was too much. Uh, or for it to fit, you would have needed a magnifying glass to read the size font that would have been there. So it is not printed in your bulletin today, but the page number references there if you want to follow along in a Bible, or it will be on the screen here behind me too. So you can follow it just by looking at the screen as well. But three parables that we're going to look at. They go back to back to back in Matthew. And we're going to look at these three things together and say, what is a kingdom idea that develops as it goes? And what's the response that comes out of that as we get to the end of that, okay? So, I'm going to begin in Matthew 21, and it is the parable of the two sons, and I'll read the two parables that follow that as well, the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding banquet. Here's what it says. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. 
said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take the inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the street and gathered all the people that they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, 
How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, three stories here that go back to back to back. Three parables, and we're going to look for that kingdom idea and the response that comes through to them. Let me framework for this, for understanding how these stories work or something that's sort of weaving these together. It has to do with a lawsuit, a divine lawsuit. You see several examples of this in the Old Testament. God bringing a divine lawsuit against his people. That the covenant of God, the law of God that was given to the Israelites in the Old Testament was a covenant that came to them with some conditions. Here's what you do as God's people now. And when God's people fail to do that, God calls them to court. He brings a lawsuit against them. I think it's a helpful way for us to work through these three parables to see that framework, to understand that. Because what's laid out in a lawsuit that we're going to see here? Well, first there's charges that are put together and an indictment is laid out. So the indictment lists, here's what the charges are. Here's what you are accused of. Then with a verdict, a sentence is declared. Here's what is declared because of the charges that have been brought and the verdict that is reached. And then there are consequences that are imposed. So whatever that sentence is has to be carried out. And there's a result to that. Something of that courtroom scene, I think, is going to be helpful here. Because we're going to take through these three stories and we're going to see that happening. See that take shape in these stories. In fact, we can sort of trace it through those three steps, through these three stories. So I'm going to go back and, and we'll look at these three stories one at a time and we'll see how this plays out, all right? In that first story, there's an indictment. The indictment is laid out. And this one is the parable of the two sons. So charges are filed. An indictment is laid before God's people. It's a story where there's a man who has two sons, right? And he tells them both, I want you to go work in the vineyard today. One of them says, nope, I'm not going to, but then actually goes and does it. The other one says, yep, I will do what you asked, but then does not do that. So what's being laid out here as an indictment against God's people? Here's where maybe a little more context around the story might be helpful because I picked up this passage right where the parable starts. But there's an audience that Jesus is talking to in this. And you would have to go back a little earlier in John 21 to see, I'm sorry, Matthew 21 to see that. That Jesus is having a, a conversation, an interaction with Pharisees, religious leaders, those experts in the Jewish law, the ones who were, well, in that day, they were the court. They were the ones who upheld the law for the people. So this courtroom language would have made sense to them. But it's also why the indictment comes towards them, because those are the ones Jesus is talking to. And he's laying out a charge there, a charge that says, all right, you religious leaders, you've got all the right answers. Outwardly, you have everything that looks religiously correct, but the expected result 
of kingdom fruit is not there. So you've got it all together on the outside for a show. You put up a pretty good front of looking religious outwardly. But that inward heart of faith that produces kingdom fruit, it's not there, it's absent. And then he goes a little step further with it, right? A a little step further to say, and then there's these other people. Other people that we've sort of brushed aside to say, they're not religiously acceptable. They don't follow the rules. They don't have what it takes to be one of our religiously correct people. But hey, look, some of them are actually producing kingdom fruit. Even though outwardly, we don't see that appearance upon them, inwardly, there's a heart of faith. So there's a charge, there's an indictment that's being brought forward here. By being outwardly religious does not necessarily mean that there's this inward heart of faith. An indictment that's brought through in that story. And in that story, there's something where you even get a little bit of the verdict that takes place there, right? And we're starting to see a piece of that by the end of the story. That the kingdom will be taken away from those who think they've got everything together on the outside. But that verdict then plays into the next one, the next story where we see the sentence that's imposed because of this. Now, the next one is the parable of the tenants. And in this one, there's every commentator that I read on this passage agrees to what Jesus is really making connections towards in this story with the parable of the tenants. That you have this landowner and he rents out his vineyard for these other people to take care of and produce its fruit. And then he sends his servants to them, but they want nothing to do with the servants. They mistreat them. They abuse them. Some of them they even kill. And then he says, I will send my very own son because they will respect the son. But again, they kill the son. Commentators all agree Jesus is making reference here to the way God sent prophets throughout the Old Testament. All of these prophets that would tell his people, here's what God requires of you. Here's how God would like you to come before him. But the people would have none of it. And then Jesus, I mean, in this setting, he's giving a little something of his own story. God sent his own son. But even the son they take and they kill. There's something of a sentence that comes because of this then. A verdict that takes place, right? A verdict that the Jewish religious leaders are guilty of rejecting. Well, they're guilty of rejecting their covenant relationship bond with God. So in the courtroom scene that takes place, the evidence is laid out there. Here's the evidence. God sent prophets throughout the Old Testament and you did not respond, you mistreated them. God is sending his own son who will be crucified, killed, executed. The evidence is laid out there. The verdict is pronounced. Guilty. And then something of a sentence then that takes place. And here's where, I mean, there's an ironic twist in this story, right? Because Jesus is talking back and forth with these Pharisees about it. And Jesus, rather than just declaring, and here's what the sentence is, he turns the question back to them. So what do you think? 
What do you think is going to happen because of this? He's telling these Pharisees, in effect, go ahead, give yourself your own sentence. You saw it there in verse 41. Here's what those Pharisees respond to, and they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Right? They're pronouncing their own verdict. And then they are implying their own sentence. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. We'll give him a share of the crops at harvest time. Something that we see in there where Jesus has those who are accused of owning up to what it is they've been accused of, even if they didn't quite realize it at that point in the story. You saw by the end of the story, though, where they got it. Hey, I think Jesus is actually talking about us, guys. This is against us. They catch on sooner or later. The sentence then is that the vineyard's taken away. The covenant kingdom, the vineyard, is taken from them. That will be imposed upon them. And then the last story, a wedding banquet. So there's a king, and his son is getting married, and he throws this giant banquet, and he sends invitations for all the important people to come, the chosen people to come, but none of them do. A little context that would help around this, that a wedding banquet like that, don't think of it like weddings in our day, where sometimes, you know, you maybe get a whole bunch of invitations to a wedding, and I can't go to them all, I have to pick and choose, so you RSVP which ones I can go to and which ones I can't. Or It's sort of, okay, can I go to this or not? That is not the implication with a wedding banquet in the Bible. When someone important like a king gives a banquet and you receive an invitation, you are expected to be there. It's almost mandatory. Well, not almost. It is mandatory that if you've got the invitation to come to the wedding, you're going to show up. You had better be there. And I mean, there were a few excuses that would allow a person to get out of that, but not many. And it had to be some pretty extenuating circumstances to not show up for this wedding banquet. So the king gives the invitation. Here's the banquet. Everything's ready. Come on in. And then none of them do. I mean, it's not a moment when the king would say, all right, so what gives? They're all busy with something else. It would have been an insult. An insult to refuse to do that. And so the king then sends an army to destroy them. All right, that feels a bit harsh, doesn't it? Because you didn't come to my banquet, I'm going to send my soldiers on you and destroy you and burn your cities. That's the response that's harsh. But really understanding the cultural implications because for them to say we reject the invitation to the king's banquet is tantamount to saying, and we reject the king's rule. We reject the king's authority that they were turning their back, not just on this banquet, this meal, but they were turning their back on the king himself and rejecting that. So he sends that army to destroy them. And then he puts out another call. All right, we've got to fill the banquet hall, so let's bring anyone in. Interesting detail in that story. The bad as well as the good. I don't care who they are. They get an invitation. No matter what they've done, they get an invitation. Anyone who wants to respond and come, 
gets an invitation. They all come. You see there in, in a detail that the invitation to the banquet, it's not based on merit. It's no longer, I was important enough to make the cut. I'm on the list. It has nothing to do with who you are or what you've done or where you've been. Everyone gets an invitation. They all come. And then you see this detail that comes through that. Right? Those who are reject the rule of the king do not participate in the banquet. But those who respond then are the ones who accept the rule of the king. So they respond and they come. But then the story turns with this other scene at the end that maybe is a little bit of a head scratcher, right? There's this one guy who's there at the party and he's wearing the wrong clothes. And he gets tossed out because of it. So what's going on there? Right? How, is, how does that take shape? Well, maybe you think of it in terms of, okay, if I got an invitation to a wedding banquet, I'm probably not going to show up in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt, but I'll at least look somewhat more presentable to that. But that doesn't quite get us there. Because there was an expectation to dress a certain way to come to this. And not only that, Matthew does not include this detail in it, but his original audience would have understood this and would have known that about the culture. That the king himself would have been the one who provides that, provides the wardrobe. That you, you didn't need to, okay, I need to go home and find my Sunday best now, and I need to put on my best clothes. That's not what's going on here. You get an invitation to a banquet like this, and the king provides all the wardrobe, all of the clothes to be worn. So it's a gift. It is a gift that is given. The king gives this gift to say, here's this wonderful new outfit that I've given you to wear when you come to this banquet. And then there's one guy there who refuses that gift. He says, nope, I, I don't want to wear what the king gave me to wear. So he's thrown out thrown out because he refused to accept the gift of the king to wear what was appropriate for that banquet. All right, what are we pulling through on that then? Something in the consequences that take place to this, right? One of the consequences to this sentence is that those who reject the rule of the king don't participate in the wedding banquet. That those who refuse to participate in what the king has invited them to participate in, refuse to participate in the kingdom, are kicked out of the kingdom. That they don't belong there anymore. That they're turned away. And you see this other little detail in there as well, right? That those who are not clothed in the proper clothing... now. This is all a story of parable. It doesn't have to do with actual clothing, but we think of it this way. That when Jesus went to the cross and took our sin, that an exchange took place there. That on the cross, Jesus took the guilt of all of my sin. He took that from me and traded it. That on the cross, Jesus takes his own perfect righteousness and he says, this is yours now. You wear this now. 
so that when the Heavenly Father looks down on you, he doesn't see the guilt of sin anymore. What he sees is a clothing of righteousness that you're wearing. And it's the righteousness of Christ, the gift of the King for you to wear. Those who are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ don't participate in the kingdom banquet. Part of participating in the kingdom means I'm wearing the righteousness of Christ. I don't lay that gift aside. I don't put that one in a drawer somewhere. But I remain clothed in the righteousness of Christ as it comes to us. All right? The indictment, the verdict and the sentence, the consequences, all of that played out in this for us to see. So what do we say about a kingdom idea that pulls through all of this? How are we going to summarize that one? Well, I don't know that we need to dig too deeply into that because it seems to come out a little obvious to me, but I just don't like saying it. It's not a kingdom idea that really feels that good. We've done this in weeks past with other parables, and we've seen some of those other kingdom ideas, if you remember that, right? The parable, the kingdom idea where the farmer scatters all the seed around that God generously sows the seeds of his kingdom. We saw a kingdom idea like that. The parable of the mustard seed. We saw a kingdom idea that the kingdom grows from small places. We've seen some of these kingdom ideas to where we said, yes, that is what the kingdom of God is like. All right, here's a kingdom idea that it's in this story, but I will tell you I don't like it because I don't like the way it sounds. But here's what's happening. Here's what's happening in this story. Kingdom of heaven is being taken away, at least from some. Right? Isn't that what's happening in the story? That there are some who are invited to the kingdom and given the opportunity, but then it's taken. It's taken from them because they did not respond in the certain way. They did not live up to the expectations that were there. What do we make of that then? How do we move forward with this one? Understanding that here's, here's some tough parables. A few hard things to work through. Things that, I mean, if I were to say amen, we're done right now, we would leave here a little bit edgy, right? Of, oh, I don't know if I like this story. So how do we make this one work out so that we can find a little bit of peace with this. Because I don't want to live as a person who's always tiptoeing on eggshells of, I don't want the kingdom taken away. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? What are the expectations of the kingdom for this to happen? Well, there's something about recognizing what it is that takes the kingdom away. There is, in that story, People who thought they had it, but they didn't. They thought they were in, but something was still missing there. That the kingdom was something that they thought they were entitled to in some sense. That they merited the invitation, 
And I know, you know, we can get past all of this uncomfortable part of this message and, okay, all right, you know, skip to the part of the gospel again. Do that part again. Let's, let's remember how God is loving and forgiving and all that we are is now an identity that's in Christ. Let's go to that part. Can we just leave this part behind and let's, let's get to the good news part? Let's go straight there. But I want to stay here for just a moment because... We only know how good the good news is when we realize how bad the bad news is. It's not really good news unless it is the counterpoint to really bad news. And I think we need to stay there for a moment. Because we might come out of that a little too quickly a little too quickly to say things in our own mind of, but I want to find this place of peace. So, you know what? I do believe in Jesus. And I do believe that, that he has saved me from my sin. And, and look, I go to church and I, I know all the right things and I believe all the right things. And I've got some habits that sort of support that. I, you know, I do my devotions or I'm part of a Bible study or I give an offering. And I've got all these things that show something of being there. And of course God loves me then. But... That's exactly what those Pharisees thought too, isn't it? Of course God loves me. I know all the right things. I've got all the right answers. I do all the right things. I live the right way. Of course God loves me. And those are exactly the people that the kingdom is taken away from. So let's not leave this place a little too quickly without recognizing the situation that we are really in. That we don't bring anything before God. That we cannot find a way out of this ourselves. That when it comes to the question of, so what does God expect from me then? What does God expect for the kingdom? That it comes to a place of recognizing and saying, I can't do that. I can't live up to that. I can't live the way that God truly expects me to live because I mess up. I don't always get it right. That I, on my own, cannot find my way out of this mess. You see, because the, the moment that I think that I've got the kingdom in some way, right? That, that I figured out the kingdom. The moment that I think I figured out how to get the kingdom is the moment that I lose it. But the moment that I realize that I have been given the kingdom is the moment I gain it. Given the kingdom in ways that I've done nothing to deserve this, right? That the kingdom is a gift, it's a gift of the king. And we receive it then. And all of this happens through Jesus. It is through Jesus that the kingdom came to this earth, born with Jesus. It is through Jesus that the kingdom found a place of redemption and restoration when Jesus goes to the cross for us. It is in Jesus that we're given a new wardrobe to wear, a wardrobe of righteousness before God the Father. 
The kingdom then is something that only comes through Jesus. And we depend on Jesus for that. So what's a response then? How do we take this into a response? What is it that God expects? Well, I've already seen here that I cannot live up to expectations of living the right way or being the right kind of person. That that does not seem to be the proper response here. But what is God really looking for then? I think a proper response that comes out of this would be simply a response of humble gratitude. Wait a minute. There's a kingdom that I'm given an invitation for that I didn't do anything to get? A kingdom that means the world that's more valuable than anything. It's priceless. And I don't deserve any of it, but I'm on the list. And I'm in. And I'm given all the right things to wear. How can I thank you enough for that? God, what can I do to express my gratitude for something like that? It's humble gratitude as a response. That this is not one of those stories that you walk away from tiptoeing on eggshells of, oh no, I better not misstep and get it wrong because I need to hang on to this kingdom, but rather it's a story that we walk away from with profound gratitude. God, this kingdom is so amazing and I don't deserve even the smallest piece of it, but you give it anyway. It's ours anyway because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. All coming because of Jesus like that. You'll notice in this story too that there's a byproduct. There's something that happens because of it as a result. And it has something to do with kingdom fruit. That we are people who produce a kingdom fruit. Now, that is not a condition Right? It's not the, all right, you need to show that you can produce fruit before you're allowed into the kingdom. That's not what happens there. I mean, think of it in terms of the story. If the farmer's looking for tenants who can grow grapes, he's not going to say to them, all right, you're not allowed in my vineyard yet, but I want you to show some grapes. Well, how can I show grapes if I'm not in the vineyard? First, the invitation comes. We receive it in humble gratitude. We live as God's people that way. And then there's a result. There's a byproduct. There's something that happens in our lives because of this gift. And it's producing kingdom fruit. Jesus restates that in the story. Right in verse 43, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, talking about the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, and given to people who will produce its fruit. That there's an expectation, a kingdom expectation that we live in humble gratitude. And when we do that, God, through the Holy Spirit, produces fruit in our lives. And we know something from other parts of Scripture, what that spiritual fruit looks like. Right? The Apostle Paul talks about that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these characteristics that become woven into part of who we are as God's people. It's not the checklist of, I've got to figure out how to do all these things. It's the, here's what will happen in my life because of what Jesus has already done. Here's what now just comes out of me as a byproduct, as a result of being 
part of God's kingdom because of Jesus. All of that then is a response that leads us forward to show us that God produces spiritual fruit in my life when I accept the invitation of Jesus to live in humble gratitude as a kingdom participant. Right? Humble gratitude. It should knock my socks off every day when I wake up and realize I get to be a part of God's kingdom? Me? God, thank you. How can I thank you enough for that gift. And when I live in that mindset, that framework, the Holy Spirit does its work. God does what God does in the hearts of people who come to Him in humble gratitude and produces that fruit in our lives to participate in His kingdom. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word. And even though this story took us in a rather uncomfortable comfortable place of having to acknowledge that there are moments where the kingdom seems to be taken away, God, thank you for reminding us that that really does not depend on us, but it's all a gift of Jesus. So God, I pray today, pray first of all that we would repent of the times when we've tried to make the kingdom our own way by our own doing, by our own resume. And God, I pray that you would then give us some assurance of wonder, recognizing that we do in fact have a kingdom and it's all through Jesus. So may we live eternally with humble gratitude for this amazing gift. And may your Holy Spirit then produce that fruit in our lives that is evidence of your kingdom around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.